cliffcentral.com. Welcome to a special live edition of The Burning Platform. We do this show every Thursday, but this one is a special one because we have one of our major contributors, someone who's been part of The Burning Platform and certainly part of Cliff Central for ages. Uh, we, we consider him part of the furniture, but a hell of a piece of furniture he is. <laughs> is Canton Distinguished Pile. piece of furniture. Distinguished, absolutely. So, I saw a picture the other day of you with your long hair, Canton. But Pumi, you've known me with long hair We've for the longest time. We miss your long time. hair. <laughs> <laughs> so um, it's good to have both of you here together again. And it's not an irregular occurrence, but it's always good because it means that we get to the meat of things. I mean, neither of you are particularly well known for being fading flowers on any subject political. The Burning Platform is always a discussion of mostly current affairs, mostly stuff that is going on in South Africa that affects us all. It's the politics, the economics, the social impact of things that are done in this country, how we could do things better. Hopefully we come up with solutions a lot of the time. But the reason we've decided to dedicate this morning's show to Canton is because he has been hard at work on this book, which I can't think of any more practical, sensible way of dealing with the problems that face us as a country than the work you've put in here. And it comes not just from the actual writing of this, but from 43 years in the media, 43 years in the public eye in various ways, shapes and forms, and in business, trying to solve these problems at an individual level and then taking it up, scaling it up, as they like to say in business. So I'm very happy that we can get into the, the nitty-gritty of this, how to fix South Africa and owner's manual. First of all, well done. Good stuff. Um, the more we can find solutions, because people are crying out for these things. Almost everywhere you go, people go, yes, but how do we fix? And here you go, how to fix. So... We have a studio audience here. We'll probably get to some questions from you guys a little bit later on. And it really was, the idea here was to create a little exclusive place where you could have interaction with people who have questions. Pumi has the first go at this, though, and you read the book this week. Uh, what do you want to start with? So... <laughs> oh, no. It, oh, it, no. No, no. It, it reads um, like a manifesto. So I think my first question is, is this the return of the purple cow just in time for the election? The short answer is no. No, Canton's wasted enough money in politics. <laughs> now I'm wasting money read. on book publishing, Gareth. Because no, it does read like it's a manifesto. It's not an inexpensive thing to do. You're just finding yeah. new ways to waste money uh -huh. at this point. <laughs> because it does read like a manifesto. And, you know, having, because we're all reading the manifestos this this week, I think. You I are. Hope. You're the, you're Pumi, what's your question? Because what, no, seriously. Uh -huh. why, why now, if it is not the well, manifesto the for the purple we have an power. election coming up next year. Mm. Do I want to influence thinking ahead of the elections? Absolutely. Is it a book of ideas that are going to be specific to a political party? No. My understanding is that you can have our ruling party taking these ideas and adopting them. And, and frankly, if they adopt even a tenth of the ideas that are in the book, they'll immediately look great in the eyes of the electorate, and it's hardly going to cost them anything to do it. Um, ditto in the case of all of the opposition parties. The idea is to put the solutions out there. It's kind of open sourcing solutions to the country. That's, that's a good way of looking at it. Mm. Okay, so 
rank our top five biggest problems, and then we'll get to the solutions. What are the five biggest issues? I heard someone say yesterday that the provision of electricity is comparable in a direct, logical fashion to GDP. The two are linked inextricably. Well, very much so, because at the point at which you don't have electricity, there's yeah. no production that actually takes place, or money that would otherwise be spent upon actually doing productive work gets diverted to fuel, which is right. money that effectively goes straight out. So of is that number one? That would not be number one. Because What's number one? Well, number one would clearly be the question of how do we go about creating sustainable employment for the masses of people in the country. So I think that the single thing that drives people right now is that, because no matter how much electricity we have, if you have unemployed people who can't afford okay. to pay electricity bills, it doesn't I, help I, us, does it? I'm going to break, because I'm sitting here with two people who I know are capable of, of getting into the, the real meat of the story. We can't create jobs. You're a capitalist. Sure. You, you can't artificially, I mean, this is something that politicians seem to think is a, it's, a, it's almost like a policy statement. It's like, we're going to create jobs. There are no politicians in the world who've ever created jobs. What they've created is extra expenses on the government side of things. When you talk about creating jobs, and this goes equally for you, Pumi, how do we begin to do that in a country where it seems... No, Garrett, I don't, recall saying, government... I don't recall saying that we need to create jobs. I said joblessness is the problem, okay. which is an entirely different thing. Right, then... Mm. then, then and, and, to, and, and, hang on. and to answer your question... We seem, we seem to be in a situation where the, the, the government, and I, uh, some of this may be addressed at individuals, but some of it's also addressed, addressed at government. And as you said just now, if they implemented some of these free of charge without giving you credit, they would make the country better. But we seem to have if unemployment is a major problem, and I don't disagree on that front, we seem to have a government who are hell-bent on making it harder to create jobs, mm. not easier. They almost seem to relish the fact that so many people are financially dependent on the state. Or maybe, <laughs> maybe the answer is that they just don't understand don't the nature of the problem, which is an entirely different thing. So the question in terms of... Right, how never attribute to... Hmm? Malice, what can be explained by ignorance. By incompetence, yeah, exactly. And if you take very specifically the question of how do jobs get created, well, you need an enabling environment that's uh, where people will actually say, I'm willing to employ someone to work for me in order to grow my business because, you know, fundamentally that's a starting point. Now, when you, have, when you make the leap between a small enterprise to a medium-sized enterprise you suddenly have all of these hurdles that you have to, uh, to jump through in terms of the regulatory framework that kicks in. You have um, your, your tax burdens shift uh, drastically, your BE codes shift drastically, and all of those are not incentivizing people to grow their businesses. Mm -hmm. So it, it's a very specific example of how if you simply remove the regulatory framework that affects the ability of people to go out and employ other people, then you're immediately going to have a knock-on effect. So as a very basic level, we've spoken about this on the show in terms mm -hmm. of the impact of minimum wage laws. And I use the very specific example. Let's say you happen to be a young single mother, landed your first job. Let's say you're getting paid 8,000 rand a month, but you have a young child at home and you need to look after the young child. And 
you can't afford to send this young child to a crash because, you know, that's going to set you back around about 5,000 rand a month. Yeah. And, you know, when you factor in your taxi fare and all of those oh, no, things. No way. Now, it just so happens that you have in your neighborhood another unemployed mother who is very happy to take care of your child while you're away at work mm. and um, is happy to do so for 1,000 rand a month. But the law will not allow you to employ that person for a thousand rand a month. And that's a travesty. So the law forces you into a scenario where you are getting a 350 rand a month uh, grant, but you're not allowed to earn a living for a thousand rand a month. And that's why I'm saying mm. the regulatory framework, minimum wage laws are the single biggest killer in terms of, uh, of uh, creating jobs. Because there are lots of small businesses. Remember, we've also had the discussion around where is the post-COVID economic boom happening in our country? And the truth is, it's happening on the streets of the townships. Yeah, It's not happening in... Uh, in Big in corporations. Terms of, in, mm. why, why does it happen in the townships? Because they don't give a stuff about the regulatory framework. But how do you get those people who are doing some really clever stuff that happens... In, uh, in terms of the township economy. Mm. How do you get them to be able to grow out of that space and actually end up developing things that can turn into global brands? Well, there's no pathway that goes across there because as soon as you cross the threshold, as soon as you need to start coping with the regulatory framework, everything dies. Kenton, when I was reading the book, I couldn't help but recognize how a lot of the ideas that you have in the book are, uh, on the surface, very simple. But the, the problems that we deal with in our country are also incredibly complex in that they have lots of different parts. No, I and think that that's an excuse for inactivity for me. No, no, no. I'm not finished asking the question. <laughs> <clears throat> so what do you think it is that is the hurdle that stops our governing individuals, our ministers in terms of policy, the DGs in terms of implementation, from making some of these uh, simple, simplistic maybe, changes that you believe need to be put in place? I think the single biggest thing that stops us is the fact that most people who are involved in running the country don't actually understand the nature of the problem. And in order to understand the nature of the problem, you have, need to have a holistic view uh, of, of what happens. Um, I've got a friend who's uh, sitting in the audience right now who told me that he had asked a very simple question of many politicians, which was, how does our economy work? Mm. And he was <laughs> not able to get an answer to that because people don't understand the nature of how all of the pieces fit together. So what they do is they say it's complex and it's going to take years in order to be able to solve a specific problem. Okay, so if I'm really cynical, more than usual, mm -hmm. this book could have been like a page, how to fix South Africa, and then open it up and go, get rid of the ANC. I don't think that that's a solution because frankly... <laughs> I don't think that John Steenhuysen understands I mean, the, the problem either. So, so to simplify it, to go in the <laughs> opposite direction to Pumi, I mean, I know this is, this is facile, but 
they are at the root of much of our trouble. You even mention in the book, if you, you mentioned the, the, the make a, fa a faster horse situation, the analogy that everything that this government that we currently have learned about governance, they learned from the previous government, who were also incompetent, corrupt, and had possibly even worse policy, certainly in the political and social realm, than this government does. But they didn't learn anything new. We're, we're trying to build a faster horse rather than a car. You're correct. But yeah. you, you know, the question that, uh, that then flows from that is how do you get to the point where you get people thinking about understanding how everything in terms of how our country works actually fits together? And that's really what I'm trying to do. If you try to break things up into these bite-sized chunks so that people understand that the solution to a problem doesn't come from throwing money at it. And remember, we, this all started off with the question of the long-drop toilets. Because, yeah. you know, mm. really, that, that was where the journey started. Well, this comes down from. to toilets. Yeah, so, so, you know, it, it came down to the fact... It was Helen Ziller's Achilles heel, too, with toilets. Do you remember? <laughs> yeah. But it, it came down... I mean, the, the journey of this book really started because there was an eight-year-old girl mm. who... Hideous story. On her very first day at school, yeah. literally ended up drowning in shit. Yeah. And it, it, it's, it's, it's such a horrendous, unimaginable um, uh, tragedy. And then you ask government, how are you going to end up fixing this? And they say, oh, it's going to take 10 years and it's going to need at least 10 billion rand. And when we cut through to it, it no, actually, it's not going to take 10 years. It's going to take six months. It's going to cost less than a billion rand in order to be able to fix the 24,783 long-drop toilets that exist in our schools today, because we know exactly where they are and how to fix them. So to your point, just simply saying that get rid of the ANC, is, it's not going to help, because you know, frankly, Stian Hazen doesn't understand the nature of it either, because he's never done a day's work in a business in his life. Mm. He's... No, never actually um, wired uh, up uh, any electrical appliance. Oh, but people, but people said when, <laughs> you know, Donald Trump has years of experience in business, but he's a terrible policymaker when he was elected. And, um, and in some respects, they may have been right. In other respects, they were wrong. Are you one of these business people, no more answers than politicians camps? Well, I think that it fluctuates on an individual basis, you, you know, a lot of people made that particular argument in terms of our current president. Yeah. And, of course, we know that our current president not a was, was never a person who built up no. a business from scratch. So he doesn't actually you know, end up ticking those boxes. So at that level, I'd probably put more money on Patrice Motsepe yeah. because he's actually gone through a journey of... Uh, well, conveniently, and, uh, he's the brother-in-law, so we can always just... Yeah, well... <laughs> and, a, and a major funder. Yeah, well, nepotism is a game the whole family can play. We yeah. were talking yeah. about nepotism earlier. All right, so we dealt with unemployment as number one. What's number two? Look, safety and security clearly is something that you know, affects uh, every, every single uh, uh, one of us. Our educational system affects every single... Is that uh, two and three respectively? Safety. No, I don't think so. But, I think they're linked. But my, my point is that we can actually do all of these things at the same time. And that, again, is something that we need well, to get out of. That's the reason to have can, government departments. Can we, though? Can we, though? Yes. You know, I, I think when we look back at how we got to where we are, there, there wasn't a, for me, looking at how the government 
decided to take over and change what they're changing, is there wasn't a prioritization of what we can do first and how it knocks on to other things. It was trying to fill, fix everything all at the same time and therefore fucked everything no, up no, at no, the same I, time. No, no, I completely disagree with that. <laughs> and if you go, let, let, let's go back to the Thabo Mbeki era. Okay, where basically we came out of the, um, uh, the Asian crisis of the late 1990s. You might remember at the time we had interest rates that shot up at one point to something like like 25%. And I, and I know that you know during that time, my family was basically living on fried eggs just in order to be able to pay our bond because you know the prices just you know shot through the roof because they they followed Which, by uh, the way if you try that with eggs now you'll be even more in debt <laughs> <laughs> they follow the conventional wisdom uh, what was our finance minister liebenberg oh. yes chris liebenberg was there before trevor manuel you know um, and you know and the reserve bank at the time just insisted chris on stoltz was the reserve bank governor and, mm. and stoltz was the was the reserve bank governor but they you know they pushed up interest rates and did yeah. and did uh, conventional wisdom stuff and then Thabo Mbeki comes in. He's got uh, Trevor Manuel as his, his finance minister. What's the first thing he does is he pays off the debt. Mm -hmm. And he says, we're not going to be borrowing. So he pays off the debt. Once he's paid off the debt, because remember the national debt was the single biggest item on our budget. At I think the time. it is again. We're, getting, we're close to getting up there, right. Um, but at the time, it was the single biggest item. So now suddenly we have this dividend because of the fact that we're saving money on the national debt. So what does Mbeki do? He takes that and he puts that dividend into social grants. Mm -hmm. And guess what? It worked because that was economic stimulus. Mm -hmm. Plus it was playing with surplus money. But yes. He, but he also had no um, exit plan for all the people that he was putting on social grants. No, so now no, here no, we no, sit. No, there no, was I, no exit no, no, plan. No, you, you see, the point is... If there was economic growth, it would have paid for itself. Thank you. Yeah, that's exactly but the point. But if you have that no exit get. plan for people who are on social grants, it doesn't which is matter. where we are, it, it doesn't they matter remain because on you the see, grants. You see, the, the impact of injecting that much money into the economy the cake had, had a knock-on effect. So South Africa had the single biggest sustained period of economic growth mm -hmm. in its history. You know, uh, even, you know, go back to um, the early days of colonialism, you know, the, the heart of, uh, uh, of Grand Apartheid. No, actually, it was under Thabo Mbeki. Consistent, sustained economic mm -hmm. growth. And the knock-on effect in terms of all of our businesses was huge. Then we end up with Mbeki gets ousted. We have... Jacob Zuma come in, we have uh, Praveen Godan comes in, and what happens? We start borrowing money, but what are we borrowing money for? We're not borrowing money to put into infrastructure that's actually going to be growing the economy. What we are doing is we are now borrowing money to fund social grants. Yeah, correct. And that's the problem, because we, we, now we don't have an exit plan. At that point, we didn't need an exit plan. You see, when, when the country is generating a surplus, and remember the key to economic growth, guys, and uh, I keep beating on this drum. Go on. As long as your economic growth is higher than the rate of your population growth, you're going to be prosperous. Mm -hmm. It's just simple. So your population is growing at 2%, like India is doing. The economy is growing at 5%. They're on the road to prosperity. That's it. We've got it the other way around. So every year we are getting poorer because we are ge generating less money per person mm -hmm. than we used to. So how do we actually get to the point where we flip those things around? And if we take that as the basic starting point, 
that's you can't run a business and think of our country as a business. All right, so yeah. talking about running a business, uh, you devote an entire chapter to state-owned enterprises. Yes. Another massive headache for every South African because we thought, oh, well, this is government's problem. They must sort it out. It's not going to affect us. <laughs> but back in the, in the Tabombeki era already, we were starting to see the warning signs of the ESCOM. Load shedding is a uniquely South, proudly South African term. We now all deal with it on a daily basis. It hid away for a couple of weeks now, and now suddenly it's back, tormenting us again. Uh, state-owned enterprises are a model example of how not to run any kind of enterprise. But at the same time, we see from the Chinese example, remember that nearly everything... Oh, you sound a lot like uh, <laughs> government now. We learn from China. China does this properly. Why yes, do you, but, but why you, do you see, cite China? But you see, the difference is that China's able to... They've got competent people for starters. They've got competent people, but there are consequences to corruption. Right. Which, which again, is crucial. You know, so you, you literally have um, members of the ruling class who end up getting executed when there's any malfeasance involved. And... I'm not suggesting that we necessarily go down that route, but we, but, but I, we, but we need to understand, guys. I think there are a lot of people in society who would <laughs> suggest that route. Sure. But that's the second page of my version of your book, by the way. <laughs> yeah. What? Execute? <laughs> but but Pumi, to, Pumi, to go back to the, uh, <laughs> uh, to the point, you know, it's, it's like uh, you might remember the Gerald Ford analogy. It's possible to walk and chew gum at the same, same time. time. But there are a lot of things going wrong yes. all at the same time. And you have a lot of ideas in your book, and I'm simply saying how feasible is it to do all of these things at the same time? How many government departments do we have? So if each of those is Thousands, taking one of those more than ideas, any other country. <laughs> and, and, and implementing those particular ideas. Hey, guess what? You know, these things flow very quickly. So you know, the simple thing, for example, in terms of how do we get competent policemen you know, who are able to actually fill out a docket and for dockets not to get lost. Mm -hmm. And we have the technology available. We have access to things like blockchain to actually keep track of where dockets are at various stages so that dockets can't end up getting lost. And again, all it requires is well, just simply the will to govern. We, we are a country <laughs> that, you, I mean, this is something you and I agree on too, Pums, is that we're a very resilient country and sometimes that resilience can be a barrier to our own success in that we are Markaplan people, right? And sometimes when you Markaplan people, you get abused. People take advantage of you because they go, ah, don't worry about them, they'll figure it out, which is almost the impression I get from government a lot of the time. Even with this harbor port situation that we've got at the moment where all these containers are waiting to be unloaded or loaded onto hundreds of ships which are waiting outside in queues to get in. Who's come along and solved it? Well, it turns out the private sector again have to come to government's aid. This has happened in almost every sector of our economy. And I don't know whether it's helping because it's, it's allowing them to get away with murder. We should actually have them, even though it's our money, sued for their incompetence, have to pay a personal price, be accountable for their bad decisions, their lack of maintenance, and their inability to manage a situation. Yes. But the problem, this is happening right yeah. now. Yeah, but to go back to the point that you were making around the market plan society. So you consider the, the sheer... Uh, and numbers of gated communities that are springing up around the country right now. Mm. And effectively what we are doing is we are creating these mini city-states mm. 
and you know dystopian science fiction. And it wouldn't be a, a, mm. a bad bet to say that a lot more of those happened post those riots that we had a year and a half ago. Sure, yeah. but you know one can carry on, and certainly that's going to continue happening. You're going to see more and more of these. Um, self-contained gated communities springing up, they're going to be taking responsibility for generating their own water supplies, they're going to have their own schools and so forth. And, mm -hmm. you know, they're already doing security. Yeah, so Waterfall yeah. Estate is a good example. Great example. You know, they're purifying the waters of the Yuxke as it flows into, uh, into the estate. And it's like you know, an, an entirely different world. It's like you know, crossing from Gaza across into Tel Aviv. And... Mm. The and it literally is Tabombeki's mm. two South Africans. Yeah, yeah. And, and, yeah. That's, and that's the problem because, yes, there are those of us who are competent, who are able to do stuff. I mean, you're off-grid at your place in oh. terms of electricity, as am I. Mm. But that doesn't help um, the people in the streets. No. You know, there, there was... Uh, and you can't uh, be an island. And that's you can't. And, and, and unless we can get to a point where we are able to take the lessons that we are learning in these suburban enclaves and translating them into the rest of the country, we're not giving the masses of the people of the country a reason to believe in the future of the country. And when you don't have a reason to believe in the future of the country, you're going to have a constant state of unrest within the country. And that's why it's actually important for us to actually be saying, yeah, we can't shut ourselves off. We can't actually... No. Look, Orania works. We know this, and it's great. <laughs> no, seriously. You know, kudos to those guys. They've set up this, uh, yeah, you know, uh, little. Um, it's an enclave. Uh, it's a, it's, it's, it's an enclave. A separate, but, yeah. separate country. Yeah, but you know, how do you end up creating that framework for everyone? And I, I think it's actually possible. But the the basic rule that you need to do it's, it's like when you're running a business. Don't spend more money than you're making as a starting point, unless you know that you're going to be able to pay it back. Uh, yeah, but uh, you're talking to a country where <laughs> our, our debt also, levels are through the roof. No, uh -huh. But you, you know, th there are also two parts to making any of these ideas work. Besides the fact that you want a, a government that is willing to do all of these things. The second part, which I think we don't talk enough about, is that the people of this country need to be more involved. But we also have a very low level of A, participation beyond just even showing up at the ballot, it's not that great anymore. Uh, we just have a very low level of participation from the people. And how does that Especially get turned Because that's none of these ideas yeah. would work without a buy-in from the people. Mm. No, actually that's not true. Because, you know, in nearly every single one of these cases, these are ideas that actually require policy implementation rather than buy-in from people. So, so use the policing analogy that you've got in your book here, mm -hmm. right? So where you're saying if we want competent police, we just have to create a policy that says the intake has to be a particular level. So bring in degreed or diplomaed young people sure. who are currently unemployed. But if those young people don't want policing jobs... If they don't, the policy can be there. If those young people don't show up, it doesn't matter. You see, it's, it's all about a question of numbers again, you know, and we drill down to it. Um, the latest figures, which, you know, so I, I, I've been writing this over the course of five years and I've needed to update figures as I've been going along. And when I started writing about that particular thing about the number of unemployed graduates that we have, mm. when I first started, it was around about 300,000. It's up to now 
just under um, uh, 800,000 that um, university graduates that yeah. we have in this country. That I mean, that's, that's frightening because we, yeah. we so, see every year all these yeah. kids lining so, up. So to your point now, Pumi, if even you have 10% of 800,000 unemployed graduates who say that I would rather be a police officer, Earning immediately something. we've solved a problem. And it, it's all about the numbers. It, it, okay. 10%, it works. But, but let's roll this back. And, and this is why I love having both of you on the show is because we can actually get to the root of things and diagnose the disease instead of symptoms. And a lot of these are symptoms. What are the actual responsibilities of government and what is up to individuals and communities? Because you mentioned just now that you know, there are people who've made themselves energy independent. They have private schools. They pay for private health care. They live in gated communities, so safety and security is not a concern for them. And then we've got the broad mass of the rest of South Africa who don't have options in this respect. What are government's duties and what are not government's duties? Because it should be a limited number of things that government are actually depended upon by people. What are those things? I think there's certainly a lot of decisions that we allocate to government right now that, you know, frankly shouldn't be decisions of government to make. You know, so for example, determining what size your business needs to be should not be the prerogative of yeah. government. Deciding who gets the right to export produce should not be the prerogative of government. Right. So we, we can certainly agree that government in our country is far too bloated and and what is true is that we have a propensity for overregulation. Mm. But that's a problem that's going to be a far more difficult problem to solve in the longer term. We'll, is there a possibility that we'll get to an Argentina type scenario where you know Javier Millet has come in and he's promised that he's going to completely slash and burn <laughs> in terms of. Uh, he's of the canton of Argentina. <laughs> no, I, no, actually, he's what they thought Donald Trump. Guys, would it's, be. It's, it's not true. And you both had the wild hair, so. <laughs> no, we disagree on some points. So, okay, so for example, he's got this quest uh, in terms of dollarization, and you know, I think that that's crazy. Uh, I think you do need controls in terms of your ability to be able to print money, and you know, one, frankly, one reason why we haven't ended up going the way of. Argentina or Turkey for that matter with you know better than 100% inflation mm -hmm. is because our constitution actually imposes very specific guidelines on the reserve bank yeah. to protect the currency um, yes the reserve bank could be doing a better job of it but yes there are very specific areas where government frankly should not be uh, playing a role you know how far does that go well I think Again, should the government be having state-owned enterprises? Yeah, well, so let's, yeah, let's, get, let's get really very uh, detailed here. The, 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 the minibus taxi industry, yes, which is fraught with corruption. And it thuggery. Is, it, a thuggery? Oh, yeah. L l I thought you said something else, but yes, probably <laughs> some of that too. Listen, the, the, the taxi industry is in so many ways a metaphor for so much other stuff that's going on in South Africa. In the book, you go into some detail about how you would fix this. Some of it's pie in the sky because we know that <laughs> Becky Tele, for example, who's now a police minister, has a hand in this too. And some of these problems would require an enormous amount of courage, which I don't think anyone has, probably some 
uh, attempted murders and or assassinations along the way, which I don't think we have the stomach for. And in order to wrestle this industry, which is actually an outgrowth of capitalism in an economy where black people had to rely on themselves for transport because they were so let down by the previous government and this one, in some ways, the minibus taxi industry, though it may be riddled with gangsterism and corruption, is actually an outgrowth of economic necessity. So you can, you can fix that because it's, it's, it's a supply and demand situation. Go into how you would do that. Well, we use the very specific example around the share. Again, it, it drills down to the numbers, Pumi. So in terms of minibus taxis that we have on our roads right now, there's just over a quarter of a million minibus taxis around the country on a daily basis. But here's the interesting thing, guys, that those quarter of a million minibus taxis are actually owned by about 20,000 people. And so every uh, the majority of people who are... Um, driving those taxis, actually, they don't own those taxis. Mm. And one of the simple... If they did, they might drive better. Yeah, so essentially what what happens is that you have these 250,000 minibus taxis on the road, and the driver is basically given a mandate, you're going to bring me back a thousand rand a day, Mm. and then after that, whatever money you make is yours. Mm -hmm. So these guys, they break the laws, and they, they drive like crazy, and What's the solution in that particular case? Well, we spoke very specifically about just actually give ownership of the taxis to the drivers. In other words, use a medallion system like they have in New York City, where you're not allowed to actually have a a license to drive a minibus taxi unless you actually own it. So what you are doing is you're removing this level of mafia bosses that effectively control the minibus taxi industry. And the reason why our government is not in a position to legislate towards that right now is because a lot of those minibus taxi owners are sitting in parliament. Yeah. We know this. But so, Kenton, this mm. is what I meant about some of these uh, answers seem simple, simple yes. enough, but the, the, the environment is much more complex than that. So the minibus industry, for instance, right? So taxis and now e-hailing and all of the additional uh, players in the market, all that they have done, where you would have thought that opening it up and making it more competitive, giving other individuals like Bolton, all of that, an opportunity to operate would would also create a self-regulating of some sort and a, a, a recalibration in the market. It hasn't. All no, it's it done is, is it's created. It is self-regulating it, because they carry on, firearms. It has not. It, but yeah, but <laughs> what it's done, what it has right. done, is it's created more thuggery. So more of the thing that you don't want is actually what has happened in that industry. And I'm simply saying to you that some of these uh, of your ideas, just within the environment, are a little bit too simple. They're not considering all of the issues. When you have a quarter of a million taxi drivers out there and you tell those quarter of a million taxi drivers, guys, what we want to do for you is to give you the right to own your taxi so that every cent that you end up making from there actually flows through to you. And if you end up getting that message out to the taxi drivers, then at that point, those taxi drivers then have the mental capacity to say, we are actually going to throw off the shackles of the guys who currently happen to own our taxis and 
we're actually going to take ownership of it. And but that so all comes come, down to but you actually have now ensuring also, that the message gets out n- there. But you have now also come back full circle to the point I was making earlier about the need of having the right type of mentality in the people. So you are hoping that the taxi drivers will respond in a particular way. No, that's I'm what not you're, hoping. You, that's an, what you're hoping. How I'm do you not, ensure not, that they respond in that you way? You don't need to. It's human nature. <clears throat> But they're already, at the moment, those taxi, those taxi drivers who then have to only give in a thousand rand and every other cent they make, they don't have to take the risk of owning the car, but they can make more money than the owner. Pumi, do you pay e-tolls? I don't. You've never paid e-tolls. No, Why? I've never. Because it's not in your interest to do so. It's human nature mm. to want to avoid giving away the fruit of your labor. And to try but and, and to try and access more. You have not responded to. You have not responded to what you I'm are, asking. You, you are trying to make a problem complicated no. when it's actually simple. Human nature is such that we want to be prosperous. You hope, and you are yeah, hoping hope. No, I think that these taxi drivers will respond in the way that. <sighs> but hang on. But this is my point: is these taxi drivers currently can make more money than the owner. They can make more money than the owner because they only are expected to bring in a particular amount of money to the to that owner Which at the end of each day. Every year. So it, it doesn't matter. They can make more money. And in Canton's reckoning, they are then their human nature will then make them more willing to work harder for themselves because they make this more money. It's and it is not that way. So again, going back to understanding the nature of the problem. Okay, so you look at the times of day when taxi drivers end up making money. Okay, they make money in Uh, Early in the the morning morning when they're bringing people to work and they make money in the afternoons. And during the course of the day, those taxis are generally sitting idle. Now, if they were in a scenario where they did have access to, for example, a crowdsourced, uh, sorry, an open sourced um, uh, framework that would allow individuals to be clear in terms of where taxis are going to be at particular times, and everyone has access to phones these days. Um, and yeah. you can actually run this type of technology even on uh, uh, on dumb phones, even though the majority of phones in our country right now happen to be smartphones. You would then in- incentivize a scenario where you are creating a public transport system. People right now don't understand that in South Africa we don't have public transport, we have commuter transport, it's, and it's very different. Cities in the functioning real world, you know, whether you're talking China, you're talking India, you're talking all of the developed uh, Western countries, they have public transport in the sense that you can rely on getting a bus in the small hours of the morning. Whereas we have many bus taxis that run for particular I, times. I don't want us to idle. get. I don't want us to get fixated. Let's rather fix. Um, and and <laughs> you, you can buy the book if mm. you want to know what what else Canton says about taxis. I brought it up as a microcosm of so much more that's going on. But let's just talk for a second about something else that's big. In the, it's in the news this week. I mean, just yesterday they were talking about the national health insurance. Yes. Right. And this is something which I think has got a lot of people confounded, upset. They feel very betrayed. The medical schemes aren't necessarily doing what they're meant to do. Um, people aren't participating necessarily the way that they should be. And that's a, that's a very big pumi thing. Um, what is the way and what is the maximum or minimum amount that government should be involved in healthcare? It's a big problem in this country and it clearly is a big issue for the politicians and therefore maybe for the voters. 
Well, healthcare is, <laughs> is kind of interesting because it's one example where government did something that actually worked to the advantage of the masses in the country. And that what was, was that? when there was reform in the pharmaceutical industry that took place. It's probably close on about 20 years ago now, where you ended up with single exit pricing for, uh, for lots of drugs. And the pharmacist then ends up just simply... Um, Prescribing generics. Uh, yeah, but, but uh, they charge a, a levy in, for dispensing of drugs, but the levy is actually capped. Okay. So it used to be that you had pharmacists who were incentivized to sell you the most expensive thing because They'd as a, a percentage of the, the fee, it would be significantly more expensive. So, again, a bunch of problems that uh, derive from this. Firstly, we are producing fewer doctors right now as a country than we were in 1994. Because, again, there's an entire framework of policies that have been put in place by the current government, but the main reason is that you bring in people who don't have the necessary academic qualifications at the first-year level, they end up dropping out after a couple of years, and so you're not achieving the desired outcome, which is an increase in the number of doctors. So multiple solutions to that particular problem, starting off with... How do you create more medical schools? Well, you need the ability for private educational institutions to then be able to issue medical degrees. Again, that's a very simple thing in terms of actually changing the legal framework mm. so that you can start generating more doctors. At the point at which you are generating more doctors, you're actually able to get a greater spread of healthcare professionals around the country and not have to... Okay, but none of this so far people. involves <laughs> national health insurance. No, but... Again, if we look in terms of places where national health insurance actually ends up working, yeah. uh, I use the example of Israel. Mm. Okay, and, and Israel actually has... Oh, careful. Government don't like Israel. It, it doesn't matter. The devil may quote scripture. And, and it's, it's very important. <laughs> Guys, you know, we need to understand that we should be borrowing ideas yeah, from where things actually work. China does some things very well. We should Steal borrow it. ideas from them. Oh, sure. Israel does some things very well. We, well, that's, that's been China's whole policy you know, in terms of retro-engineering technology. Absolutely. Sure. And, so you if know, you're going to so, steal, steal from a thief. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you look in terms of uh, um, uh, 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 Iran does stuff brilliantly. Uh, no, we've uh, got very good relationships with all these countries that you're talking about now. Yes. And, uh, um, well, in fact, the president would like you result. to learn from China or the Chinese people Especially and I mean, stop dis but the short disparaging answer, about right, our yeah, country. Remember, there's a good story to tell. <laughs> but, but we've got, you know, national health insurance, again, you know, unpack exactly how we do it in a way that becomes affordable under the current health budget, immediately improving right. uh, the Let's health Let's get to system. the most important question of the morning. Is there champagne in your orange juice? <laughs> there, there absolutely is champagne in my orange juice, guys, and I hope you're going to be okay. joining us. So, Pums, you've got a question, and then I, I want to go to the question. audience because we've got One last question here. before the audience. The back of your book also says, no matter who you vote for, get your politicians to drive these ideas. And so I just want to ask how you think more people can be part of driving some of these ideas. What do they have to get right first besides buying the book? Well, I thought about the most obvious means, which was to distribute uh, chicken in a stadium, but that ended up being prohibitively expensive. Pumi, you're asking me to get into people's heads. 
Okay. Now, Dude, you have just been advocating for human nature all along. So let me just say this, okay? The way in which the law of diffusion of innovation works is that in any given populace, there are 2% of people who are actually innovators. Only 2% in any given populace anywhere in the world. But 2% of what's our current population? 60 million people. Million. Yeah, it's, you know, it's a fair whack of people. So it's a few hundred you thousand. would think that yeah. we'd be doing a lot better. But the idea is that for that 2% to actually get their ideas out into the marketplace and to actually prosper, they actually then need to persuade a further 13% of the populace, and it's only 13%, to buy into that particular idea. And at the point at which you then have the 2% influencing the 13%, you then have a tipping point. Mm. And that's the point at which ideas actually go viral. And you know, I use the example of the March on Washington that Martin Luther King um, uh, organized all those years ago without social media. Yeah. Okay. Without, uh, I mean, it, it was a word of mouth scenario, but it was just simply saying there are 2% of us we getting this additional uh, 13%. And suddenly you end up with hundreds of thousands of people con uh, on uh, conveying uh, on uh, Washington, D.C. Of course, today, Martin Luther King would be charged with insurrection by the Democrats. Yes, yes, yes. But let's not dwell on woke culture, which mm. I, I don't think you even bother touching on in here because it's not really something we no, need to worry about. No, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to let the audience who've got some questions, we've got a, an exclusive audience that we invited today and who uh, paid for their tickets and they deserve to have a say in all of this. We've got a couple of minutes who wants to go first? I know you people and don't have... And we've got a roving you, microphone. You don't have easy questions for Canton either. Whether you've read the book or not. Yes, sir. Let's go. Just say who you are. Uh, hello, everyone. I'm Chabum I'm a student at Wits University. Good and stuff. my question pertains to the role of the youth, but also touches on many of the themes you've been speaking about, including unemployment, but most importantly, the employability of graduates. If you look at the role of universities, firstly... And as I said, I study at WITS, and you see the rapid rise of certain political parties within universities and student politics. The EFF, for example, have a great role now to play the next year of what happens in our universities. It also is a microcosm of what's happening in the world. Every single year you have strikes that happen at university which impacts the learning. You have elections happening as well in the next year which are going to be very important for our country, but the youth are also taking it very seriously. Question. What is the importance and the role of the higher education institutions and the role of the youth as well in fixing South Africa? Nice. That's a hugely... Uh, we, we could probably spend a, a lot of time ending up discussing uh, this particular problem, but it starts off with actually recognizing that you can't take 12 years of bad schooling and turn it within the short space of a university degree into a great exit level outcome. So my view very clearly is that it starts off with actually fixing the schooling system. And if you emerge from the schooling system without the ability to read, write, count, and to be able to actually string um, a sentence together, it doesn't matter if you go through the funnel of a university, you're actually not gonna be in a position to make that much of a difference. And I'll give you a very specific practical example from my side. Back when I was um, 
running my uh, operation at YFM about, this was probably about 15 years ago now, and I was looking to hire a law graduate that would be able to handle the regulatory and compliance framework for the radio station, because I'd been doing all of that work myself up until that point. And so I put out an advertisement, and it was very simple. It required that you needed to have a law degree and you needed to have um, completed your articles, which today they, they say is a candidate attorney, but it meant that you needed to have the right of appearance in court. Mm -hmm. And um, and I called in, uh, so there were the hundreds upon hundreds of, of applicants, which we ended up shortlisting. And I ended up interviewing, I think, probably close on about 50 people. And I had a very simple task. I said, I want you to write a letter to an employee who has done the following number of transgressions. And out of those 50 people, and all of these were law graduates from our universities, mm -hmm. there was only one person who could actually write a simple letter. And these are law graduates. So to the point, our education system at a higher education level particularly in terms of liberal arts. And, um, you know, I count law as part of that entire liberal arts milieu. It's fundamentally broken. And we're not going to be able to fix that in the short term. But more to the point, we need to look at how many of the degrees that are being produced right now by universities actually guarantee a path to employment. And I'm saying most of them don't. You know, frankly, you have a much better chance of earning good money and becoming prosperous by becoming a plumber or becoming an electrician no. within a shorter space of time. You're not spending, um, uh, you know, tens of thousands uh, of rand every year in order to complete a university degree. And, yeah, the so I think we need to firstly find a way of decoupling the idea that the path to prosperity for a younger generation is going to be through universities. The second thing is, I think we need to actually eliminate this idea of youth as a category, because it, it literally is a dumbing down of society. Mm. So, you know, I started work at age 19, yep. you know, which is when I had my first byline in a newspaper. I never thought of myself as a youth. You know, I was a person who was earning money at that time. And, you know, anyone who told me that I was a youth, you know, I had a you know, told them to take a hike. Well, it's, it's infantilizing <laughs> and patronizing. It does. Okay, so I've got to stop you because we want to get a couple other questions in. Mm. Yes, sir, go ahead. Again, by the book. <laughs> Morning, my name is Nathan. I'm from Empire Partner Foundation. How are you? Very well. Good. Um, quite an interesting discussion. And thanks for the book, Anton. I just want to remind us that, you know, we had a very successful story in South Africa. You know, that uh, freedom was impossible for me as a student. Uh, I had gone through some of the worst things that uh, most people could have gone through in our country. But something happened in 1990 1994. In 1986, uh, you know, I was detained for a long time as a kid. I was 16 years old. None of us ever believed we will see this day. But some inertia happened from 86, 87. Uh, we had the formation of the UDF, but society at large just got together and said we want to rid ourselves of the system. Mm. And that shows me that as an equity value in the society, we can do something. Yeah. 
and I listened to the debates, but one part that's misses for me is that it wasn't the entire society that did that. There were a few, uh, a certain elements that drove a mass movement and got people energized. And societies by large, you know, people are just busy with their own lives. 90% of our country lives in poverty and they have to survive from day to day. That's the real truth. Many would not have a chance to even see the show. Yeah. But I think what misses for me is that we'd like a societal leadership, not at the ground level, Kanton. Corporate South Africa remains silent. Yeah. You can take from every single time from 1994 to now, we've just remained silent with guilt. <laughs> We're interested in profits and at any cost. The poor borrow at 30%, uh, and the extremely wealthy that cause the problems borrow at prime minus two. But Which I is a problem the, that I address in here as well. What we, well. The question to you and the team is this following. We should find, uh, I want you to answer the question, how come we've been so silent about that level of academic leadership that can help, the corporate leadership that can help, and civil society? Let's ignore government. Let's just say we're done with that. That for me is how come that misses in our society? Thanks. Canton? Yeah, so that, it, it, it's a very good specific point that, uh, that, that's being raised. And I, I used uh, a couple of examples in the book. The one is the banking framework, where it's you know, unconscionable to me that poor people borrow at a much higher rate than rich people do. And simply, we're not even talking about Mashonisas and all of that. No, stuff. no, simply because of the fact that if you drill down into the numbers, and guys, this is all about data at the end of the day, the rate of default is not actually higher for poor people. Mm. But it actually isn't. So the, the framework that we have right now, to a large extent, because of the fact that, again, this is a, this is a question of where there is a lack of regulation rather than actual regulation that actually prevents the scenario being fixed. Another level that I think is unconscionable, why does prepaid telephone <laughs> airtime cost more yeah. than postpaid? Because you know, the person who is paying upfront you know, and paying cash, you know, usually you pay cash, you get a discount. You know, why do you have this, this a reversal of the scenario? But I, I, do, I just mm. want to bring us back to his mm. question because it's a very valid one, something Pumi and I mm. were talking about in the first hour this morning, yeah. is this question of courage from Corporate and academic South Africa, in particular, those are the two you mentioned, but there are other places too. Why this lack of courage and this, uh, this, this apathy, if it's apathy, it might just be compliance, uh, and fear of like saying something that's going to make you unpopular with government or with a certain political well, Because party. the short answer, Gareth, is that government can make your life very difficult if they but also act. corporate South Africa is making money, guys. Yes, they are making money. They're but the point is that they want to avoid a scenario <laughs> where their ability to make money gets curtailed because of the fact that they've incurred the disfavor uh, of, uh, of government. You know? So you know, we saw the fact, you know, years ago. So this metaphor is uh, they're a whore who's happy to be paid no matter how awful the treatment is. I, I, think it's, I think it's a bit more complex than that. So, you know, to use examples from <laughs> a few years ago, you might remember that, you know, when Michael Jordan was still running FNB, he came, he came he up with... He writes the forward of this excellent yeah, book, he, by the way. Yeah, he came, up, he came up with a, a campaign that, you know, started honoring the heroes of... Soweto in 1976, and he started rolling out a campaign, and guess what? There was threats from government to pull all of their accounts from FNB, and that campaign 
died. Okay, mm-hmm. you had Roel Koza, who was uh, uh, running NetBank at the time, as I uh, recall, you know, came out with a range of things in which um, uh, government could actually be making lives better. For, again, they piled into him and they threatened him with regulation and all of that kind of stuff. How do we get out of that particular uh, loop where the regulatory framework is not able to be weaponized against anyone who speaks out? I don't know the answer to that. You know, Pumi, to go back to the point that you raised at the start, whether this was my entry into, uh, into politics again. When I was actually chasing um, funding for getting into politics uh, five years ago, I went to people that I know who are literal billionaires. Mm-hmm. And I said, guys, you know, uh, give me some money. And you know, they said to me, you know, you want to start a business? I'm very happy to, go, to put money behind you. I can't put money behind a political party. It was just very simple. Why? Because it actually causes problems for them. So, yeah, lo- you know, so, so um, I, I 100% agree with the point that Nathan is making. Yes, that we have all of these people who are silent when they should actually be speaking up. But again, how do you get to the point where you hit a critical mass where there are enough people speaking out at the same time, but more importantly, taking collective action at the same time in order to be able to do this. And, and the fundamental problem, guys, is that SARS has access to your bank account. Ah. Okay? It really is that simple. Yeah. How do you actually revolt when SARS is able to... You do what the taxi buses do and you only deal in cash. cash. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so... I'm going to have to wrap this up, but I've got one last question. And since Pumi, we started this show before Canton came in this morning talking about nepotism. <laughs> I'm going to allow some nepotism for the last question. And your own daughter has something to ask you. Okay, so hi, my name is Mia. I am a senior high school student and Canton's daughter. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not sure if this is discussed in the book, but specifically referring to crime rates in terms of domestic violence and rape, which are extremely prevalent in our country. How would you address that? Because right now, we're colloquially known as the rape capital of the world, essentially. Mm-hmm. Rape rates are increasing and steadily mm-hmm. every year. And, and we're about to start that ridiculous 16 I days of activism. I think we're activism. already in it. Yeah. Yeah. Are we already in it? Okay. Crimes such as theft would, of course, go down once employment levels are higher because you won't need to steal. Mm-hmm. But rape, mm-hmm. as far as I'm aware, is not ever in correlation with monetary state. Well, actually, it's a great question, and let me tell you how I'd address it, because we're running out of time. So there there are two ways in which we actually end up tackling it, but it goes to, Gareth, the discussion that you and Pumi were having um, on the earlier segment of the show this morning relating to the question of, um, of nepotism very specifically. And you made the point that the person who ends up controlling the purse strings... Mm effectively ends up dictating the course of what happens in the family. And we end up having 
a culture of silence around, remember that majority of rape that takes place takes place within the family structure. Yeah. And there is an economic incentive on the part of the victim to not report because you've been raped by your partner, but your partner is also paying the bills. And so if you send your partner to jail, you're ending up in poverty. And, and that's the vicious cycle. And to a large extent, this comes back to the question of minimum wages. And I say, uh, for example, it is better to have, in a family of five, if you have five people who are earning 2,000 rand a month, it's better than having one person earning 10,000 rand a month. Because then each person controls their own money. And the idea of controlling your own money is really your passport to freedom that allows you, and that's why it becomes an economic problem. So you control your own money, you effectively control your own freedom, and that's the way you end up addressing it. But until such time, you're always going to have the scenario where it is going to be that rich uncle who, because of the fact that he's the rich uncle and the entire family is dependent do what on he him, wants. is able to get away with doing the stuff. Yeah, I mean, we, we should also, and there won't be time for it now, but we should also get into the social ills and the family problems and the structure of society that I think we have deep and fundamental ongoing issues within this country. And they are as a result of our history. They're people. Yeah, and they're people, human nature. So human nature's come up a lot here. Um, so look, to wrap this up, because we don't have time to carry on with the show anymore, but for our invited guests, you get to spend some more time with Canton after this, have a coffee, uh, croissant, there's some <laughs> nice food. We've looked uh, to some good catering for you this morning. We've got bubbly, we've got... got uh, the I'm bubbly actually that, only here for the bubbly. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but you, you continue to be a brave voice. You continue to not only provide insights and talking points, but also solutions. And anybody who says how and asks what we can do about these things... I don't want to hear from you anymore. Go and buy the book and then we can have a conversation about this stuff because Canton's done the heavy lifting for you. So go and take a look. The book is called How to Fix South Africa, an owner's manual, because that's important, that byline. Mm. We're all owners of this country. You know, despite what anyone tells you about who owns the stock market or the land or anything else, we all own it. And we all have a share in government. We all have a share in responsibility too. This is a great book. I can't recommend it enough. Well done to you. And uh, we, will, we will continue to have these conversations on the Burning Platform. Thank you, Canton. Congratulations. Thank you, guys. <laughs> Cheers. See you tomorrow. Thank you. Did you get a sponsor? Did you get the, did you get the billionaires to sponsor them? Central.